welcome back. This is Charles, your host on the Bring It All Back Home podcast. And today is going to be about something super simple. But I'm hoping to go in for a little bit of a deeper dive. It's going to be all about a vintage film from Ilford. One of the mainstays in their lineup for many, many years. What's known as Ilford Pan F Plus 50. Yeah, Ilford Pan F 50 speed film. Going to look into things like the bulk roll version, ways to develop it, takeaways from finishing the development, including drawing the film, what sets the emulsion apart, good and bad, and what to expect, why you'd want to shoot it. So yeah, let's take a deep dive into Ilford Panf. So bulk roll, bulk roll is why I am talking about Ilford Panf plus 50. Bulk roll or bulk rolling, uh, the whole bulk roll thing is something I highly recommend getting into. I was reluctant for many, many years. It seemed like I don't know, an, an extra step that was maybe uh, for just the the really, really dedicated film fanatics. Um, but then once I got into it, I'm like, no, you don't you don't have to be the ultra film fanatic to do bulk rolling or to enjoy it. Um, just, you know, one of the things I really love about bulk rolling is it, it stops making a new role this 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 uh financial event <laughs> if i could put it that way you know when you when you purchase three rolls of whatever it is or five rolls or whatever it is or you 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 order from adorama or bnh or wherever you get your film you order maybe 10 rolls you're kind of aware each time you pop open a new roll like okay yeah well here goes more of that money i spent you know let's make it good you know whereas with bulk rolling it kind of helps def- deflect that like, you know you spent a lot of money to get the bulk roll, but now that you have the ability to use that 100 foot of film, it's really up to you. So you can make these rolls that are only, you know, 14 uh, shots long. You can make another roll that's just around 20. You can make one that's just under 36, you know, or you really have that variety and, and that frees you up. So, so I do typically do that. I'll often have at least one roll that's quite short, ready to go. One roll that's, you know, maybe a little bit over 24. Uh, and that's where I'm kind of comfortable with. I kind of like the 25, the 28, mostly because it's a technical issue. I It just tends to avoid uh, when I'm cranking up my Patterson reel. Uh, it tends to avoid any difficulties. Every once in a while, out of nowhere, my, my perfectly working Patterson reel will kind of get hung up once I get past 30 frames and then trying to crank on the remainder 31, 32, 33. It's just ugh. <laughs> you know, like like you're you're trying to crank and there's no crank going on. So essentially the film was kind of like getting stuck in there. Not a fun proposition um, to prevent that. The next time I will pay attention to scrubbing down the roll. Sorry, the uh, the container you know the actual reel i'll pay attention to scrubbing it down even more with hot water and i'll make sure that i'm loosening up the ball bearing a bit more before i even begin 
the process. Whereas when it's a slightly smaller roll, again, 24 to 28 frames, that rarely ever happens. So that's where I usually lo load mine up, but I always uh, make at least one around that's half that, you know, like 12 shots, 14 shots. So I could just go out and test a new lens. I can go out and test a, test a new camera. Um, so again, bulk rolling is, is way cool. Uh, also, too, for financial reasons, uh, before I came back after that introduction, I did compare the prices. And, yeah, you will get a much better price with Ilford Pan F if you purchase the bulk roll. For some bizarre reason, Pan F is now one of the expensive individual rolls. Maybe because it's not a bestseller. I don't know. I, it doesn't make any sense in my head. But for some reason, HP5 and FP4 are the two best-selling rolls of Ilford. Uh, they are right now averaging around uh, just uh, around $8 or $9 if you buy a full roll of, um, oh, let's see, am I getting that correct? Uh, maybe a little bit more. Yeah, 36 exposures, sorry, a little bit more. $9.55 is the current going price uh, for FP4. Uh, and then of course, uh, HP5, their, their number one bestseller, uh, a tiny bit difference, $9.37. If you want to throw a roll of um, Ilford Pan F50 into that mix, well, now you're jumping up quite a lot. I was kind of shocked when I looked at this price. This The ongoing price right now for Ilford Pan F plus 50, $13.05. $13. It's up there with the highest price film around. Um, did not know that when I went to uh, begin this podcast. Again, I haven't purchased it individually in 35 in quite a while, and I did not do it this time. I bought the bulk roll. Um, the last couple of times I bought it was 120, but that's not what I'm talking about today. So we'll stick with the 35 millimeter format in uh, 100 foot in the bulk roll. So you've got the bulk roll thing going on. Uh, everything's ready to go. In most cases, if you're similar to the scenario I'm in, you do want to change it up just to make it fun and interesting, you know. So I, uh, my last two rolls of film were Kodak-based. Uh, they were the uh, 100 foot of double X, um, which I got from um, the Film Photography Project, FPP. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, interesting place to work, you know, around 200 speed film. Uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that kind of had like a triax. It's sort of like this strange in-between place, that film. Uh, a little bit more contrasty than triax, depending on how you developed it. Um, but a very, very classic look. Um, I don't know. It's it's it's, it's, it's somewhat indescribable film. Um, I, I would say it leans closer to triax than it does to, uh, to say, FP4 or, or what used to be um, triax's version of 125. Anyhow, I, I decided to go even finer grained and uh, decided to go to the, the Lazy Man's route uh, for the summer and fall, um, which was 100 feet of Kodak T-Max, um, which is probably still my number one recommendation for bulk roll. Um, it, it's not cheap. Um, it's probably the most expensive bulk roll you're going to find. Uh, but it is just a wonderful thing to have um, such a fine grained film and uh, the tea grain stuff, you know, just being able to like know that when you are shopping for a new camera or you're shopping for a new lens, you throw that in with, say, some uh, Rodinal uh, or Rodinal stand development or good old uh, D76, or in my case, I'm using ID11. And no matter what, you're going to get beautiful looking shots. Like it's just never, it never 
disappointing. Like, so I went through a hundred feet of T Max 100. It never once disappointed. Ironically, though, <laughs> it can get a little boring. Uh, there's something slightly missing in the T Max 100, which is like it doesn't always jump out at you that this is a vintage camera you're shooting with, you know. So, um, beautiful, beautiful shots. Uh, but, uh, and super, super high resolution. Um, but yeah, I, I usually make these PDFs here. So, uh, let me see if I, you know, jump into, um, okay. I had, I have, uh, my Yashica, um, my, my, you know, uh, GSN camera. And these are gorgeous looking shots, um, just due to the weather, not due to any talent of me. But basically I, I, I took it out on this morning of really profound fog and mist and I'm shooting this old barn that I think has already been torn down uh, that they used to see on my way to work. Um, and everything everything about it is, is just a, a nice little symphony of mid-tones, a tremendous amount of resolution. But it doesn't, it's still on that borderline of like, is this a digital photo that got, you know, um, that got thrown into a software program to make it look like film? Like, in other words, it doesn't absolutely command hey, this was shot with a camera from the 70s, and this was shot with black and white film. And sometimes you can miss that. So that so that's that's one of the ironies, I think, of using T-Green with a super amazing developer like Rodinal, is it's, uh, it's almost too high on the resolution scale. Um, so once you head back to FP4, or you head back to a film like uh, Pan-F, or even... Um, I guess any panchromatic film uh, that's that's low, that's uh, a slower film, you're going to get more of that classic kind of grain, you know. And 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 I think that's one thing where um, Pan F's never disappointed me. Like if you do get it right, it's like yeah, this looks like this looks like a classic emulsion. This looks like a film, especially depending on the camera and lens combination you use, you would have a hard time um, knowing whether this was shot in 2023 or uh, you know, 1973 or 1953, depending on the subject, you know, you could seriously fool somebody into thinking this is a classic print, um, because it has such a true, um, vintage look to it, for lack of a better word. Anyhow, so I'm um, bulk rolling it. Um, I purchased it from B&H. It showed up. I plugged it in. Uh, my, uh, my bulk loader and, um, I cranked out about six rolls which I thought was fine to start with. Um, and then I ran into the dilemma, which I bit, which I hadn't solved yet, and this is my first kind of major ta tangent here, was how to keep going with using stock um, developer. And I touched a little bit about this on my last podcast, but really what it boils down to is uh, it's quite simple. Like, for instance, if I'm always using a 1,000 milliliter universal tank, which I do have, uh, you know, so typically I would use that if I was using, say, developing two rolls of 120, or uh, I, it can do, of course, three rolls of 35. And to be totally honest, in all the years I've been doing the film thing, um, pretty much nonstop for the last 10 years, I was doing the film thing prior to that, but typically I was sending my roles out to get developed. But nonstop, last 10 years, I've been developing my own film. Uh, it's hard to believe it's a 10-year anniversary. Anyhow, um, most of the time I don't shoot three roles of film at the same time, unless it's an exception, you know, where I got invited to a really cool photo shoot. Um, 
which doesn't happen for me all the time. Like that could happen once every year, maybe once every two years. You know, it's, it's not always where I'm going to be. Often, and be honest, often if I am at a photo shoot with a bunch of film cameras, I'm shooting Portra, you know, which I'm still going to send out and wait to get developed. Um, where I'm going with this is, yeah, I'll typically shoot one roll at a time. And then really, I think for the last couple of years, been very, very comfortable with, oh, let me finish up that second roll and develop the two rolls together in my standard uh, universal tank, you know, the one that holds uh, 600 milliliters of, uh, of of developer. And essentially it's, you know, it's two rolls. It's two reels, two reels, of 35, shake and bake, ready to go, 600 milliliters. So the dilemma I had was, well, you know, um, 600 milliliters is just a weird place to keep reusing as stock, you know, because you want to store this stuff um, without any headroom. You know, you want to be able to, you want to basically put this stock developer back in a bottle, seal up that bottle and reuse it, you know, for one, two or three more times um, to really take advantage of the stock plus 10% more each time. I've got bottles that are 500 milliliter. I've got bottles that are 1,000. You know, what I didn't have was any 600 milliliter bottles. So the first thing I did was I went online, found a place that does sell 600 milliliter bottles. I ordered one. It's a typically a bottle they sell for Jobo units, which I've never really tried or or seen in person, seen videos about them. But then the more I'm thinking about it, I'm like, well, wait a second. You know, like why not just change my habits? Like why not just start shooting? three rolls at a time and using the thousand milliliter bottles, which I already have, uh, and just getting used to that process. So that's what I did. Uh, I've really, you know, mixed things up. Um, and I've now completed my first shoot where it was, um, one roll was shot, you know, like on a, on a Friday, uh, out of Parvin Lake, uh, using one camera, uh, a longer lens. And the other roll was shot the next morning, you know, less than 24 hours later, um, using my contacts, ST, and my uh, CY um, Planar 50, um, and I shot two rolls. So now I'm ready to go. Uh, less than 24 hours of, of, of shooting these things, I am uh, throwing all three rolls in my universal tank. I'm pouring back in my stock developer of uh, ID11, and in my, um, what is it, my massive dev app, I'm, uh, I'm adding the little 10% thingy, you know, so, so it jumped up, uh, last time I think, uh, I was shooting, I was developing at 75 degrees, uh, this time in the water was not quite as warm. I think I was shooting, I was developing at 22, adding the 10% extra time because it's stock that's being reused, came out to seven minutes, which was okay. Uh, but that's about my limit. So I think next time I'm going to like warm up the developer a little bit, maybe put it in a bowl. Uh, heat up the bottle a little bit um, to because I rather I don't want to go beyond like eight minutes. Once you're developing beyond eight minutes, it's as I mentioned in the last podcast, it becomes a chore. <laughs> you know, psychologically, I think that's my that's my turning point. That's like well, it's like I could do this as an exception, but this can't be a regular thing. Like standing there shaking bacon for for ten minutes or longer. Um, Okay, so that's where I am. Basically bulk loading, uh, shooting Ilford Pan F using stock ID11, uh, shooting three rolls at a time. So let's delve, in, let's, uh, let's delve into the film itself. So what are, what are some more things to remember about using uh, Ilford Pan F? One is, again, if you're not bulk loading, it's a slightly expensive film. Two, it is a 50 
50, you know, speed film. So you're looking at going around with this film when there's sunlight. You know, do not take this film out when it's overcast unless you have a very, very fast lens. And maybe you're just shooting a model where you want that evenly lit, uh, low contrast look. You know, because the cool thing about Pan F is it will actually bring back some of the contrast for you. Um, I know that from experience, uh, one of my very, very favorite shoots with uh, a model I used to work with a couple of years ago named Emma. Um, we were running out of light. Uh, I had been shooting mostly digital, um, but I did have my 6.7 uh, Pentax that was still working at the time with its classic 105.25. Um, and I put it on 2.4 or 2.4, whatever it is, I guess 2.4, uh, put it on 2.4, opened it up as wide as I could. Um, normally like to shoot that camera at 1 250th or 1 500th, but I still didn't have enough light, so I think I shot it at 1 25th. Uh, so I'm hand-holding it at 2.4, which on the medium format 6x7 is equivalent to hand-holding it at like 1.2. So <laughs> you know, it's like super thin depth of field. Uh, and there was no light left. It was really just, uh, it had become overcast. And I, I captured uh, about, uh, out of the, say, I don't know, what was it? Yeah, 10 shots on the 6.7. At least three are some of my all-time favorites. Extremely hard to print, though. Uh, so that's a whole nother tangent, but I remember once trying to get a print out of them when I had a darkroom running in here and it, they were very, very difficult, but either way, digital wise, no problem at all. Um, so yeah, going back to where I was. So it's a super slow film. So what else is there to remember about shooting at 50? One is, you know, ideally you wake up, you use this on a day where there's light, you know, like, so in my case, it's, it's still January, February. All I knew was those two days I, I used it, um, there was going to be sunlight, you know, there, there we, we had a break in the dull overcast weather and I'm like, I'm good. You know, like it doesn't have to be blazingly bright. It doesn't have to be, you know, Sahara type uh, weather. Um, but as long as you're chasing the golden hour in some way, you're, you're good. And that's exactly what I did. I kind of chased the golden hour uh, towards sunset uh, on the first roll out in the woods, um, finding these little areas of cedar and, and, and pine, uh, and uh, different kinds of uh, basically uh, backwood areas around this lake called Parvin, um, where the sun, uh, as it was slowly getting later in the day, uh, it was probably, it wasn't maybe not technically the golden hour, it was like the hour before the golden hour. So if the sun went down at six, this was maybe quarter to five. And uh, yeah, yeah, got some very high uh, contrast, but interesting shots using the late golden hour light. And then the next day, uh, just the opposite, it was the morning uh, golden hour um, where I just sort of followed the light around uh, my favorite spots in Wildwood uh, with the mid-century motels, always trying to find at least two or three locations that are new, which I managed to do, which always amazes me that um, I have been doing this walk around in Wildwood going back at least three years now. And almost every time I go there, I'm finding at least one little thing. I'm like, where did this come from? Have I shot this before? I don't, I don't remember this. <laughs> and it's probably true because, like, it's not a perfect uh, – you can zig and zag during essentially what's, I guess, a mile length of, a, of area where there's still the most motels. So you're using this when there's light. You're using this at really slow speeds. One other thing to be aware of if you're a filter person, so if you love uh, a yellow or orange, let alone red filter, um, you've got to factor that in too, you know? So like uh, one of my favorite um, filters, so I think it's like a medium or 
15 rated yellow filter. It's sort of a, it's a stronger yellow filter. Uh, typically, you're safe just taking a stop off there. So, and on some cameras, you know, essentially what you're going to be doing is just, um, you're just cutting the, if it has a built-in meter, you're just cutting that meter and you're cutting that in half because not every, this is where it gets even a little weirder. So the more modern the film camera, like my Nikon F4, you know, or maybe, yeah, my Nikromat, which is the one I used the other day, uh, they can handle filters really well because they, they do have a pretty successful through-the-lens uh, metering system, you know. Uh, but not all of them do through the lens that well or do it at all. So you be, you could you could have a camera that still has a metering system but doesn't do through the lens very well. It maybe just does some kind of weird averaging. Um, so that's where you may want to just set the internal speed at uh, half the rating. So if you're shooting with 100, you would cut it to 50. If you're shooting with 50, you cut it to 25. You're shooting with 400 you cut it to 200 you cut it in half so like so now you're really not giving your camera much light so this is where it gets back to well then are you using a prime that can get open fairly nice you know like can you open up to 1.8 or 1.4 or one or uh can you at least open up to f2 you know um so in my case i was walking around with the uh the classic um nikecore version of the 105 not the pentax the nikecore uh, and that's a 2.5, so it's not, you know, not perfectly uh, wide open, but it's good enough. So, I, and I like shooting a 2.5 on that lens. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of, you know, that's a nice benefit of the super slow film. Um, it's 4.30, it's 5 o'clock in the afternoon. I've got some interesting golden-ish light. Um, I'm focusing on some detail of some object that's at least 10 feet or more away from me. Um, and I'm able to open that lens all the way up and still find a reasonable shutter speed. You know, like I'm not like, you know, getting uh, above 1000 on some of these older cameras, which may not even go there. So I was still able to shoot this at like 250 or 1 500th, not worry about whether or not my camera can handle, you know, those higher shutter speeds. Um, so yeah, a lot of fun pros to shooting super slow. But again, with their own kind of conditions, their own set of rules. So, so yeah, you go to... Um, load your load your film up uh, in my case i'm loading three rolls i want to i want to shoot and develop all within the same day ideally i'll get back to that later um and yeah ready to roll i got my in my case um my was my nicromat uh set to 50 because I, I i could trust the internal meter and my more modern 1992 era uh contacts st uh also set for 50 because that has you know, really modern metering. So it can meter through the lens, uh, no problem at all. Um, if I decided to use a filter on that, which um, I don't think I did, uh, but just think if I wanted to, I could uh, to take advantage of that even more interesting variations on the contrast. So this is where it gets weird. So in other words, like the if you go with a slower film, like say the T-Max 100, um, you know, you it, it's not like it's a con a contrast uh it, it's a very that that's more of a neutral ish film you know like if there was a contrasty scene it's going to bring out more contrast but the nice thing about pan f like i said is you can use this on slightly overcast days it's going to bring out a little more contrast than normal you don't have to crank it up in post if you are on a more dynamic scene uh yeah you're, you're going to get con contrast uh out the wazoo in, in some very interesting and often pleasing ways. So, so looking at my uh, favorite shots um, from the other day, I, I have one, really just one super favorite shot of the of the woods, 
and it's just it looks like this was shot using um, a strobe like it just has a soft uh, but but strongly lit center to to a tree stump and then as it um as you see the rest of the stump uh, toward the top, toward the edges, toward the toward the uh, the base of it, uh, it loses light very dramatically, and the fall off of the light behind it it goes almost black. <laughs> you know, so it's like literally like some stage lit tree stump. It's it's really kind of kind of cool. Um, and then going through some of my morning uh, walk around the mid century motels, um, I got um, just you know. I don't want to make this, so let me be clear on this too. There are films out there, uh, particularly the Roll-Eye or what's called the Roll-Eye films. Um, the Roll-Eye 80 something or other, you know, uh, the Roll-Eye 25. They're crazy contrasty. Like they're, they're going to give you contrast that to the point where you may not be able to control it. Uh, I, I found when I was on my HC110 kick that I could not control the contrast on those uh, Roll-Eye films. Um, no, it's not that bad. It, so, so this is like, for instance, I have, I, have a, I have a scene here where a very, very strongly lit building on one side and then it falling away into shadow on the other. And even though it's extremely dark on the shadow, I can still make out what's under, what's in that shadow. I can still see the details of the, of um, the electrical stuff on the wall of the building. I can still see some details of the paint. Um, I can still see through that shadow just a tiny bit, but the skies are nice and dark and, um, and yeah, it does a terrific job. So, so um, I, I, almost every shot I took though was getting some sun, you know. And and I think and that's that that really it gels with where my brain's at when I go for a walk with a vintage camera. I I really like to see. Um, it's kind of weird. I, I I never really anticipated that I would fall back into this. You know, when, like 10, 15 years ago, you you always heard people like, oh, the golden hour, the golden hour, the golden hour. And I just kind of always associated it with a color temperature. Like, yeah, you wanted that skin tone to go warm. I thought, like, what point would it have been black and white? Like, why would a black and white photographer be running around looking for the golden hour? Um, well, yeah, there's good reason. Because it's just, it's, it's just, it's a nice gradation uh, of light. You know, you're, you're, you're getting, you know, more subtle contrast and you're getting more, more interesting perspectives with the lighting. Uh, and there can be just a gentle kind of dance to it. You know, there, there, there can be these softer reflections or, or, or patterns uh, of things that are, that are uh, creating shadows um, where they're not harsh, you know, and yet, um, and, and objects, like in this case, this really vintage sign, which I can't believe is still there for the hurricane. Um, I guess this was a club, a nightclub, uh, that could easily be 70 years old, um, or at least 50. This thing goes back, I'm sure, at least to the 70s. You know, like, it's lit, but it's not so strongly lit, you know? So it, it, there's this nice, well, I keep saying nice, but there's there's definitely a, a, a subtlety to the way a morning lit, you know, um, how can I say it? The, you know, the, the warmth and the subtlety of the first hour of light, you know, that, that morning light, that golden hour light, even in black and white. In black and white, it, it tends to create this mood for your photos that is quieter, you know, um, and still, though, has a dynamic range. I mean, to be totally honest, if it, one thing I sometimes see when I look at these reviews, um, and God bless them, people are out there trying to just be 
you know, there'll be a review. It's all about what developer they use or review all about this camera they use. And every maybe like, you know, 10% of the shots will be these scenes that are just so underlit. You know, like it was a, it was just a fugly sky and they're taking a picture of some something from quite far away. There's nothing going on in the foreground and there's no light to help direct your attention in any way. And there's no person in the shot to at least you know, say, well, yeah, the light was boring, but look how evenly wrapped it is around that person's head. No, nothing. It's just like some underlit shot of an overcast day of like a city center, you know, and in the corner is a bank. And, and, you're, and I'm just like, well, like, yeah, I mean, why would you post this? <laughs> you know, like, why do you post this crap? <laughs> like, is there anything more dull than a street scene with no one in it that's slightly underexposed on a you know, on an overcast day and there's absolutely no light to direct your eye into the subject. So that's my little rant. Um, so yeah, I'm more like, you know, don't shoot on that day or rather if, you know, like if it is overcast, get a model, get somebody, um, maybe a slightly elderly person whom, for whom those shadows and that, and that soft light will be flattering. You know, and, and you take some great shots. And it doesn't matter that there's no directionality to the light because it's so overcast. You can, with the right lens and the right overcast day and the right film, produce beautiful portraits. Um, yeah. Are they portraits that that are going to, uh, you know, wow people with their directionality of light? No, there is no directionality of light. It's an overcast freaking day. <laughs> but they're still a million times better looking than going out on a day with no light and just shooting vague street scenes or somebody's driveway. Uh, so yeah, that's my speech, you know, wait for the light, go out for the light, you know, so to me, like what I've learned, you know, what, what's impressed in my bones is you're loving the film. You're absolutely loving the vintage camera. It's why we're still in this hobby. The cameras themselves are a joy. Um, if you just wait for the light, you could turn the most mundane objects into something intriguing, uh, something almost surreal. And, and that's what I love about, again, a little tangent here about going down to Wildwood, especially on this trip. I was really, really, really aware how the silence of the streets, uh, which I was a first first alerted to three years ago when I first went down there. About, I think it was a trip in 2020. I mean, I first went down there in the winter of just being like, oh, my God, like there's not a sound. You, you, you can't even hear any seagulls. Like, like, like there's just not a sound. Like it's just... Hotel after hotel, or motel, sorry, motel after motel, uh, vintage uh, mid-century architecture after mid-century architecture, and there's no one in the streets except you and your camera and the early morning light. Uh, and at some point, it, it, it almost, if you, have a, if you have a background in art history or if you had ever at any time studied um, the Surrealists, you know, <laughs> whether it was um, Louis Bumwell's films or the paintings of Yves Tanguy, or the paintings of uh, um, the surrealist precursor dude, the De Carico, Giorgio De Carico, that um, where you just you just sometimes feel like, you know, all you need is just something. All you would need to complete this surrealist thing is to just have some completely incongruous object appear, you know, like suddenly, uh, you know, in the middle of the mid-century motel, uh, you know, a bust of some uh, Italian. Uh, I don't know, you know, version of of uh, Hercules or something, you know, that that's floating. Uh, but but seriously, the the silence of the place and the the 
amazing contrast to what it is like in the summer. And even in the fall now, the fall now is a, it's a thriving town. But come February, uh, the only people you're going to see during the day are city workers uh, and people doing renovations or, or rebuilds uh, on, the, on the streets of the hotels. Uh, other than that, it's a, it's a little secret right now. You know, this is still a golden time to come down there. I, I would highly recommend it more than any other time, to be honest. I mean, you know, like if you do come down in peak season, yeah, you may get a couple of shots you really like. But the beauty of coming down in the off season is you'll just want to come back again and again and again. Uh, it, it's, it's just a, um, a place that's absolutely built for film lovers and vintage camera lovers because uh, uh, the, the possibilities uh, are endless. Uh, although, again, if you're going to really be aware of lighting, the time is not uh, limitless, you know. So ideally, yeah, you have a good hour, maybe an hour and a half, and then lighting completely changes and everything goes goes overhead lighting and, and it gets a little boring, you know, until until that light gets low enough again at the end of the day. Uh, so, yeah, so that's my boring, uh, you know, <laughs> magic hour, uh, golden hour lighting uh, shtick there. So, yeah, like, well, so what's the wrap-up? Basically, um, I've gotten... Um, bulk roll of uh, Panaf again, uh, or rather I'm back into Panaf again. I've never had a bulk roll before. Um, this is, I think, my fourth bulk roll. I started with FP4, uh, then went to the Double X, and then went to the T-Max 100, and now I'm uh, hoping the Panaf works. So my only concern, uh, which is why I kind of was scared away from Panaf for many, 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 many uh, seasons, is that back in the day, whether it was 120 um, or 35, for some reason, the emulsion on the Pan F is extremely susceptible to how you finish the development. So here's what I mean. As a comparison, you could take a roll of HP5, you could take a roll of FP4, and you could definitely take a roll of any Kodak film, any Kodak film. And you could develop it any which way. You know, you could slam that sucker around. You could hang it up to dry here and there. You could use a squeegee. Don't use a squeegee. You could you could practically, you know, try to scratch it if you wanted to, and practically nothing would happen. What I discovered the hard way uh, back many, many years ago was that this film, Pan F, has an emulsion that is not like other emulsions. So number one, it, they even tell you this on the website. You need to develop this stuff right away. Right away. This is not a film that you're going to leave in the camera. Uh, this is not a film that you're going to, you know, what, what, say you're at shot 32 and you just leave it in the camera for three months uh, waiting to get to shot 36. No, don't do that. Uh, this is not a film that you just want to leave around because you're going to wait till you get to that third roll to develop. No, ideally you want to develop this thing within like 48 hours. Or... You're gonna make. You're gonna to need to store it uh, in the refrigerator, uh, making sure it's still dry. Uh, and that's a whole other issue too, because I, I find that some things in my fridge tend to get a little over uh, humid, humidified, you know. So, um, but that may be a thing I'll test out. But basically, don't just leave it around in, in, in a room that's relatively dry and, um, or rather, a re too humid and um, and very very warm, you know. So it's picky that way. The emulsion needs you to develop it right away. But what I found was if you normally use a squeegee because you live in a building in a town with extremely hard water, um, you're in trouble <laughs> because this film scratches 
so freaking easily. And I'm not making this up. So number one, most people, if you get on a uh, if you get on a board, they'll be like, "We well, should never use a squeegee. You should never ever use a squeegee." I swore off. You know, you know there's like the anti squeegee bores. Like I've been doing X, Y, and Z for 60, 70, 100 years, and I've never ever ever used a squeegee. And the one time I used a squeegee, it, it scratched my thumb. So yeah, you're going to get dozens of those who are going to be like really pompous about it and how, and try to make you feel like you're an asshole because you use a squeegee. Well, let me. I'm here to tell you, you're not in any way. Uh, it has to do with different types of water. And, you know, there are different types of water, even in the same town, even in the same town. I'm living in a building that was built in the 50s. Um, and, or sorry, well, yeah, it was built in the 50s, was completed in 1963, I guess, or something like that. Uh, so maybe it was built in 61 to 63. Anyhow, very old building, old pipes. And my township, my place where I live, uses... Very drinkable water, but it is very hard, extremely hard water. So when I let stuff dry, depending on the film, I can not use any squeegee at all, and it's still going to be just fine. But for the most part, if I really look at the emulsion and look at the negatives, there's usually going to be some drying stains or, or water marks or water stains, the kind of shit that's extremely difficult to just clear up um, with Photoshop. Because they're little blobs, you know, that, that are distorting or messing up a, a whole section, especially if it's a portrait shoot. Oh, my God, that's horrible. So, yeah, so I've, I've overcome that. by I simply just use a good amount of photo flow. And I, I you know, I, my suds, I suds it up. <laughs> and I use a squeegee. Uh, I use the old-fashioned squeegee, the one that looks like a sponge. Um, not the more modern squeegee, you know, the ones that look like uh, like the, like a windshield wiper type thing. So it's, mine's not the windshield wiper type. Mine literally looks like a yellow sponge. Um, and I basically make sure it's completely soaked, and I just give it a tiny bit of pressure, and it gets all those suds off, and it helps dry fine, and I never have any problems with scratches ever. Unless it was something where, you know, something got stuck in my camera, you know, like there was a piece of dirt that, managed to travel through the, the role on my camera. Um, with PANF, it, it's, it's a real possibility. So when I did these last three rolls, I did notice very, very, very tiny uh, horizontal streaks, meaning like they were from my squeegee, on maybe three exposures, and that was it. So, so I got lucky, uh, and those could have been where I was just applying a little bit too much pressure. But yeah, that's going to be uh, uh, something that I'm going to have to just make sure to keep an eye out, uh, because I may get really, really comfortable um, be totally honest. If it's if it's not a, a portrait shoot, it's not ridiculously hard to clean this up in Photoshop. It's just pain. It's painstaking. You know, they're they're like perfectly parallel lines, extremely extremely thin. Um, and I often don't go the whole way through the image. Again, it's sometimes it's just the middle part. Um, but yeah, if it's a if it's a portrait shoot and it's going through someone's nose or their eyes or their eyelashes, yeah, that's really rough because it's, it's quite hard then to to hide the correction. Um, so yeah, that's the first thing, you know, pan F. Uh, be aware that this emulsion is not normal. It's not a typical emulsion. Um, that's the bad news. Good news is, like all the other Ilford films, it dries fast, it dries flat. Take a sip of water there. And this was a huge relief for me because I spent the whole summer and fall working with a Kodak uh, bulk roll where mm, I would say at least maybe a third of the time I had to wait for it to dry and then 
re-roll it up and put it back into a canister, re-rolling it the opposite way so it removes the uh, the internal curve or curl, uh, and then wait another hour or two. You know, not always fun, and then and then essentially risking more dust, which wasn't always that bad. But again, a bit of a pain in the ass. You know, uh, Kodak on a certain some some Kodaks, uh, some, some emulsions. I don't know, seem to just take a little bit longer to dry. And some, depending on the humidity in the room, will will produce a curve that you're going to uh, see uh, the dreaded Newton rings and stuff. Um, Ilford's fantastic how fast it dries. Like, I, I, I think I looked at mine three hours later. I probably could have started scanning it in two hours, which is so cool. It's like, you know, you, you finish developing, say, at 10 in the morning. It's your day off. You go do something. You make some lunch. And right after lunch, you're, like, chopping up those negatives, putting it in the scanner, or in case you use a camera, uh, you know, putting it on your copy stand, and boom, 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 you're taking a look and seeing uh, how is that Ilford Pan F Plus uh, doing. And I was really, really happy with the results. So all the shots I took <clears throat> down in Wildwood um, really intrigued me because they had a resolution that was close to what I've been shooting with all summer, meaning like there was almost a T-Max 100 look to them, but they still had way more of the vintage look, you know, like they had, they, they, these, these aren't a, you know, a T-grain film. These are pan, panchromatic, I guess, right? Uh, and they they performed in a way that were, um, yeah, like just, um, it has fine detail. Of course, it has lack of grain. Uh, but, but what I would say, though, um, is to, to use an, you know an overused expression I'm using quite a lot it, it has a vintage look you know it like so it so combined now I used it with a, a non-vintage kind of camera I used it with the, the Zeiss CY uh, uh, planar um, which to me the, the Zeiss tends to give a really really uh, modern look uh, but I, I can't wait to use this uh, with um, my Voigtlander to use this with my old uh, uh, Leica CL um, to use this even with my Minoldas, I, I want to kind of really compare and contrast how it all comes together with the more vintage looks. So yeah, I think I'm going to wrap it up here. It's been about 40 minutes or so. So yeah, I um, managed to get through an entire episode just about essentially bulk rolling, developing, and getting back into um, the slower version of Ilford. And yeah, if you're looking to uh, try it out, so far I give it a total thumbs up, especially the bulk roll version. And uh, I will be posting eventually uh, a sort of collection of my faves on my Flickr site. But for now, uh, yeah, thank you again for listening to the podcast. If you have any suggestions, you can reach out to me on Twitter uh, or Flickr or uh, Facebook. And again, I'm Charles, Charles Kirschblatt, and uh, hope to uh, connect with you guys again soon.